0: I really love the voice to text feature on my phone. I don't know if you guys have ever used voice to text, but I love it. I've found it very difficult to go back to typing on the tiny keyboard after I discovered that I could just say things to my phone and have it dictate for me. Also, lots of amusing anecdotes come as a result of uh, using voice to text, and that is personally important to me. Um, I have a friend recently, she went to Colorado and she sent me a, a WhatsApp message, and WhatsApp is actually uh, a voice message. So you say something to your phone and, and it records it and you send it to someone. And, and so she sent me a, a WhatsApp, but she forgot that she wasn't using voice to text. And so the WhatsApp message sounded like this. Hey, Kaylee! Just got back from Colorado, Comma! wondering if you wanted to get together, question mark. It was awesome. My last phone just before uh, it died went through this phase where it... Um, It it spelled out everything that I was trying to say uh, multiple times, like it was trying to figure out which version I meant. So everything I spoke to my phone, it printed out in triplicate. So the first sentence was, hey, I'm almost there. And then the second sentence was, hey, comma, I'm almost there, exclamation point. And then the third sentence was, hey, I'm almost there, but it took creative license, so it spelled, hey, H-A-Y. The the, the first time this began happening, Rob thought I was really mad at him because I sent him a text message, voice to text, and it said, when are you coming home? Only my phone sent it three times rapidly back to back. When are you coming home? When are you coming home? When are you coming home? Like sending a a text message in all caps. It just seemed like I was angry, like I was saying something that I didn't really mean. My mom was on her way to a, a church meeting at her friend Susan's house, and she was having trouble finding the place, and so she used voice to text, and she said, Hey, Sue, where is this place? Only the, the voice text that Susan received was, Jesus, where is this place? Because the phone had interpreted, hey, Sue, as Jesus. And so, so, you know, it sounded really angry, and my mom's friend texted back, Oh, I'm so sorry, Mary, I'll come right outside and meet you. It's really funny. She just seemed to be saying something that she wasn't saying. So I want to admit to you up front that I that I really struggled with my study of the verses that we're gonna be looking at today, because I think that they seem at first glance to say something that I don't think they're actually saying. However, the thing that they seem to be saying is a thing that sets an expectation in us of how God will and, and should respond to things. And so when that expectation is unmet, it can be very damaging to our faith. So let's read the whole passage, and then we're going to take it a piece at a time. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to James chapter 5. We're going to be beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. So these verses deal primarily with prayer, and they have a lot to say on that matter, but but the question that plagued me as I was going through this passage was, if this is true, then why didn't God heal my brother? And I'm sure all of you have someone that you can fill into that blank very easily that you pray diligently for. Did I I pray wrong? Did I not have enough faith? Was I doing something wrong? Or or is God misrepresenting himself in these verses? It's an important question, and we should take it very seriously. So I want you to know up front that I'm not going to sidestep that question. We're going to come back to it. But first, I want us to, to... to interact honestly with this text. I want us to take a very close look at what James actually said and actually meant to his original audience so we can better understand what it means to us. So we have to interpret James, James's words on, what, on James's terms first and not our own. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. So the word he uses for trouble here, it's a a very general term. And it's, of course, likely that he means for us to remember and think of the troubles he's already mentioned by name in previous chapters, the the social oppression, the financial oppression. But it's a a wide enough term that it can encompass a lot of different trials of many kinds, like he talks about in chapter one. And he probably means for us to think of uh, of things that aren't necessarily specifically mentioned in the letter. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. This word for happy, euthymeo. It's not, used, uh, it's not used to indicate a, a lack of trial. It's not used to indicate a, an absence of difficulty. It's actually a state of emotion, uh, a state of being encouraged. It occurs elsewhere in the New Testament, only in Acts 27, when Paul tells his fellow passengers to be encouraged, despite the fact that he's just told them that their ship is going to go down and that it's going to be destroyed, and these are people who are, who are prisoners who are on their way to stand trial in Rome. So there's, there's no shortage of difficulty happening here, but yet Paul says to be encouraged. And so I think what James is saying here, what James, when James tells us to praise God when we're happy, I think what he means by happy is, is not the absence of difficulty, but, but a state of emotions in which we find peace and joy in God, not, not instead of, but in spite of, the difficulty that we're experiencing. And this is important to remember because up, because up to this point in the text, James has made no mention of a change in circumstances for his readers and what they're experiencing. He's made no promise uh, to, of an end to the trials that they're currently enduring. He just tells them to pray. And this, of course, wouldn't exclude a prayer for the trial to be removed, but we have to understand that up to this point in the book, James speaks about prayer almost exclusively as a means of enduring trials, not ending them. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. James is not primarily concerned with relief from the trial. He knows that, that, that we're going to face pain. He's, he's concerned that the trial is used for something good to, to complete and to perfect our faith. Because he knows what we all know, right? That, that, that we live in a fallen world, that we are going to experience pain. There's no way around that. But he wants to make sure that that pain isn't wasted, so pray for endurance in the midst of your trouble, praise when you're at peace in the midst of your trouble, in trials we praise in contentment we pray. In, in, in trials we pray, in contentment we praise. These are, these are two sides of one heart that is wholly devoted to the will and sovereignty of God, because in prayer we say, "Your will be done." And in praise we say, "Your will is good." Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So this is the first time in this passage that James suggests the possibility of a change in circumstance. And this is really where the trouble starts for us, right? It, it, it would be easier, I think, for us to just pretend like James is, is not really talking about physical illness but, but rather a spiritual illness. Because we can't tell, you know, if someone has gotten spiritually better. We don't have that capacity. But we can certainly tell if their cancer went away or if they got up and walked or if their eyesight came back or if their little baby made it out of the NICU. And so, so for Christians, I think there is this temptation to hyper-spiritualize these verses so that these verses don't accidentally give God a bad name. We want to make excuses for him when prayer doesn't work. Well, yeah, you know it says that he'll he'll heal the sick. The prayer, of faith will heal the sick, but it's not really physical illness. It's it's like more of a more of a spiritual thing. So he's not failing us. We just can't see, you know how how he's healing us. And I think we do that out of a good place. I really do. But 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 if we only make excuses for God instead of really trying to take an honest look at what he's saying here, then we we diminish the truth and the importance of what James is actually telling us, because we're going to be people who don't get what we pray for sometimes, and we're going to lose steam if we try to make excuses for God. So the word James chooses for sick here, astheneo, the majority of the time in the New Testament denotes physical illness. The use of anointing oil backs this up. So so we can be reasonably confident that he's actually talking about a physical illness here. And and he says, have the elders pray over you and anoint you with oil, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. So I think what we really should be doing is is attempting to define what is meant by the prayer of faith. A couple of things that he definitely does not mean by the prayer of faith. The prayer faith is not when you just believe something so hard that it comes true. We can believe things that, that just aren't true. I believed that getting a gym membership would make me work out. Not true. John Parker believes that coffee is an adequate means of daily hydration. Not true. I got into a heated debate with my husband on our way home from SeaWorld one day. Um, our friends had gifted us a day pass, and, and there's this part of the park where you can see all the, the waterfowl, all the, the birds in. <laughs> And I am just, I love the pink flamingos. I just am fascinated by them ever since I was a little girl. They're just so bright and vibrant, and there's like absolutely no good reason for it. It's like God just wanted to spice things up a bit. He's like, okay, you waterfowl, you're black and white and gray, but you flamingos, you guys are gonna be the color of the inside bits of watermelons. People will make you into tacky lawn ornaments forever. So we're driving home, and (laughs) And I casually mentioned to my husband, uh, you know, I've never really seen a, a pink flamingo in the wild, and I've been living in Florida for like a decade. And he says, yeah, but they're not from here. And I said, no, no, no. No, for sure they're from here. And he's like, no, I, actually, fl- flamingos don't live here. Not, they're not native to Florida. And I was like, listen, listen, I know, I know that you're really good at science and geography and all that stuff, but, but listen, you're just going to have to take my word on this. Flamingos are from Florida. It's where they live. And I said it with such confidence, so completely sure of myself, that I actually inspired doubt in Rob as to whether or not he was right. And so we, do, we did what we do anytime we want to end an argument, which is to consult Google Assistant. And, and, and I did it out loud, because I wanted to be publicly vindicated for this egregious assault on my character, him not believing me about this bit of trivia that I was clearly right about. So, so I said, OK, Google, where do pink flamingos come from? And then the Google Assistant responded, pink flamingos are native to Europe, Africa, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. So ordinarily, I would just be like a little bit embarrassed that I believed something so vehemently that wasn't true. But I didn't have time to be embarrassed because of my overwhelming outrage. You have been lying to me, Florida. Ever since I was a little girl and I went on vacation with my parents, all of the t-shirts I wore from Florida had pink flamingos on them. There are plastic flamingos all over your yards. The mascot of the Florida lottery is a pink flamingo. You're a dirty liar, Florida. I defended you, and you let me down. We can believe things, and we can believe them genuinely and passionately enough to pass a lie detector test, but believing something hard enough doesn't make it true. So James can't mean that the prayer of faith is where we just Struggle to manufacture enough belief to make something happen. That's not the prayer of faith. Another thing the prayer of faith is not, it is not a prayer from the person with the most faith. If, if having faith in God, if, if just having the most faith in God got you a yes to your prayers, then wouldn't Paul have gotten healing for his thorn in his side that he prayed and prayed three times for God to release him from? He had great faith, but he didn't get what he wanted. Would Jesus himself, while he was sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane, not have convinced his father when he prayed, please let this cup pass from me if it's possible? He had perfect faith, but he didn't get what he wanted. So I want to submit to you that what James means by the prayer of faith is, is a prayer which, by some mystery of God's grace, is perfectly aligned to the perfect will of God. And, and this is different than normal faith. This is different than saving faith. Even, it, it's more than that. And, and, and let me say up front that, that I don't feel like I have this all figured out. So, so I offer these thoughts to you with fear and trembling before God and, and a petition for his mercy lest I say anything that's inaccurate about him. So I, so I encourage you to wrestle with this in, in your own time that you spend with Jesus and your study of his word. John Piper does a sermon on this that's way better than mine. You should listen to it online. And, and in it he identifies a few places that, that give us, that inform how we can better understand what's meant by the prayer of faith. One of them is 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read you an excerpt. This is where Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. So Paul identifies faith as a gift of the Spirit. So again, this can't just be normal saving faith. This isn't a gift given to everyone. These are gifts in addition to salvation, given by the Spirit who has already accomplished salvation. This is is a special, supernatural gift of faith. And my best understanding as I've learned about this faith is that it is unqualified. It's not a skill, it's a gift from God in which He chooses to reveal to you with complete clarity a thing that He intends to do, where He allows you a glimpse into His intentions. And in that, you begin to pray that this intention is accomplished, and you can do so with utter assurance that it will be. This is what I believe James means by the prayer of faith, that special faith, which is an insight into the intentions of God, a gift of the Spirit, which cannot be compelled or manufactured just by believing harder. And these times, though they are few and far between, when our will and, 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 and God's will by the gift of his grace somehow become aligned, our prayers really do have the power to heal. But this happens maybe a few times in someone's life, if at all. Because it's not a skill. It's not a guarantee. It's a gift from God given when and to whom he chooses So to answer your question, my question, the the question that we brought to this text, you're not praying wrong. Your prayers and your faith aren't responsible for the fact that she didn't get better or that he didn't come home. My prayers and my faith are not responsible for the fact that my brother didn't make it. And God, for his part, is not trying to deceive us. He's not misrepresenting himself in this passage. He's just saying something that I think is a lot more specific than I actually want it to be. My daughter, Ember, is really into playing catch right now. Uh, She wants to do it out on the porch. We sit in chairs, cross-legged. She has this rubber ball, and we toss it back and forth. And she's a toddler. She's uncoordinated. She doesn't catch well. But if you asked her, she probably would tell you that she is an Olympic ball catcher because she never misses. The reason, however, that she never misses is that I throw that ball very deliberately, very specifically into the little pocket created by her crossed legs in that chair. I mean, she didn't have to touch it. It's going to land there. It's going to stick. But she puts her hands down, and she feels like she catches it, and she's all excited. And I know, she didn't know, but I know that her ability to catch that ball is entirely dependent upon me throwing it precisely where it needs to go. She's still catching it, but I'm throwing it in a way that makes that catch possible. You really can pray a prayer that really can heal the sick, that really does have the power to do that. But it's not a skill. It's a gift from God, and it's a gift you can actually receive, but, but he has to throw that gift to you just right. Sometimes I wish it were different. Sometimes I wish there was just a formula that, that, that if I could just figure it out, if I could just do it right, that, that I'd have a shot at God giving me what I asked for. But then I think back on my track record of decision-making over my life, and I remember that we are deeply flawed human beings. We usually have insufficient knowledge, meaning we don't know what's needed, or we have insufficient wisdom, meaning we don't know what's right. So if God gives us what we want every time, I know there are times that if God had given me what I wanted, it would have ruined me in the end. This is why even Jesus prays as he's awaiting his crucifixion, not my will, but thy will be done. And he teaches, it to, teaches us to pray it in the Lord's Prayer because he knows that, that, that we are creatures who grasp and grasp for control. And so we need to be reminded daily that we pray to a God who does actually know better and can actually do better than us. Why would we pray to a God who has perfect wisdom but not the power to act? Or why would we pray to God who has perfect power but doesn't know what's best, the very act of praying itself? That exercise is an admission that there is someone who is perfectly wise and perfectly powerful at the same time, it's just not us. It's just not us. That doesn't mean your prayers have no effect. You should absolutely pray for what you hope will happen. We should tell God everything. We should pray for the things we're so desperate for that we're afraid to pray for them because we don't want to face the disappointment if they don't happen. We should pray for the deepest desires of our hearts. And we don't have to have some special insight about whether or not that, that, that they're in line with God's will because prayer itself is always in line with God's will. Prayer itself is, is a means of cultivating intimacy with God. Even if it doesn't change our circumstances, it always changes us. You understand, even when prayers don't change the situation we're in for the better, they always change us for the better. That's why we don't put our, our faith in the prayer we pray, but the one to whom we pray it. That's why we don't put our faith in our prayer, but in him. We don't put our faith in, in, in that he will give us what we want, but that what he wants to give us is good. So keep praying because we don't know. You know, We don't know when, when our prayers will simply make us better or by that special gift of faith they'll make the ones we love better. Miracles still happen. We just shouldn't make them idols that make or break our faith. God God clustered his healing miracles around very significant turning points in scripture. Moses, Elijah and Elisha, uh, Jesus and the prophets, he he used miracles to to confirm his servants to the world, to give credibility to them. So we we should appreciate the miraculous. It lays a foundation for our faith. But we can't use God's miraculous response in one situation to set our expectation for how he will respond in every similar circumstance. And we should never let our appreciation of the miraculous cause us to diminish our appreciation of God's ordinary provision. Because that's most of it. Every bit of uncooked broccoli, every bit of lukewarm water when we're getting a shower, every bit of water from the tap, Every good gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. The miraculous gifts may lay a foundation for our faith, but it's the good gifts that nurture it. Verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So the use of the the word if here if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. This is really important because we can see in Scripture precedent for, for some physical illness that, that is caused by sin, but we see much precedent in Scripture that, that physical illness is not a result of sin, not a direct result of sin. We see that in John 9 with the man born blind when, when the uh, the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, no, nobody sinned. I did this for God's glory. This happened for God's glory. And so... So so he's teaching us in that moment that we cannot attribute someone's lack of receiving healing directly to some unconfessed sin or to some weak faith. And I think he does this. I think James throws this in there to protect sick people and people who are struggling with weakness of many kinds from from probably well-meaning Christians who just give them a little bit of bad information and lead them to believe that, that, that Maybe they just don't have enough faith to receive the healing that God wants to give them. And then you have someone who's already sick, can't get out of bed, and, and now they are smothered in guilt because they, they, they feel like they don't even have the faith to receive God's healing. Parenthetically, one interesting thing uh, to note in this text is that the faith of the person being prayed for is never mentioned it's, it's the faith of the prayers, not the prayees that is effective or not. So if we want to go tell Sally who has pneumonia that, that she just has to believe hard enough and God will grant her request, what we also have to tell her is that it's us who have to believe hard enough, not her. See, if you'll find a preacher who will advertise that kind of responsibility. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. <clears throat> One point of clarity on this, he, he almost certainly does not mean that we should go find strangers and confess our secret sins to them. Um, that, is, that is not what he's instructing us to do. He, he probably means that we should go to the person whom we have sinned against and confess our sin to them and that there will be a mutual healing there. And, and, and to be honest, that's not all that supernatural. It's confession, it's humility, it's forgiveness, it's, it's, it's mutual encouragement and prayer. Of course that brings healing. Certainly in the spiritual sense, but also in a really practical sense. Two people are reconciled, the rift in the community is, is, is healed, which brings unity, which is something that the New Testament writers are constantly calling us to. Then James tells us that the prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. And I think at this point, a lot of us disqualify ourselves because of that word righteous. We're like, well, okay. Okay. My prayer is not powerful and effective then, but stick with me. The word that he uses here for righteous is a generic word. It, it simply means anyone who by faith in Jesus are covered in his blood and therefore made right before God. This is anyone who has faith in Jesus. That's what, that, that's what becoming righteous is. So, so, so our prayers, he's saying that our prayers are effective and he uses, he uses Elijah to underscore this point. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, it was Elijah. He's like the guy, and he was carried away to heaven on chariots of fire. But listen, Elijah had tremendous highs and lows of faith. He could be incredibly bold. He could. He he brought a a little boy back from the dead. He called down fire from heaven. But then a few verses later, the queen threatens him, and he flees into the wilderness, goes into a cave, and and prays that God will end his life. He has incredible highs and lows of faith, high highs and, and low lows just like we do. But he was righteous made right before God, just like we are, and therefore his prayers were effective. Therefore, your prayers are effective. Therefore, my prayers are effective. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So I think these, these last verses can seem a little disconnected, but, but I would argue that they're very much connected in as much as that. James, throughout this passage, has given us several examples of how we can fight for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In verses 14 and 15, he, he tells us how to fight for the brother who reaches out to us in physical illness, In verse 16, how to fight for the brother who reaches out in spiritual illness. And here, in the conclusion, he tells us how to fight for the brother who does not reach out in his illness at all. James is reminding us of something really important here, that there really is a final judgment. And I think Zach's right. I mean, he he doesn't really ever let anyone off the hook. He doesn't sugarcoat any of this. He's saying there is a choice there's a choice between life and death, a, a line that we cross and we cannot uncross to live eternally in God's grace or to eternally perish. He's reminding us that there really are stakes that matter and we have to fight for one another. We have to be a community that fights for one another. Our, our faith is, is personal, but it's not private. It was not meant to be done alone. And listen, if you're not a Christian, I... I know that Christians can be real bad at this. I know that we can be super awkward when we're talking about God. A few years ago, I was on a plane uh, coming into Orlando. and the week before, um, we had a a, a brilliant seminary professor who's also very eccentric, preaching here, Bob Tuttle. And and he was telling a story about how he had uh, witnessed to this man on a plane and how he kind of always does that. And I'm thinking, gosh, I, I really need to tell people on planes about Jesus. They can't go anywhere even if they want to, you know? And what if, the, what if the plane crashes, and then we all die? And I didn't tell him about Jesus. I got to talk to people on planes about Jesus. So, so I'm on this plane, and we got about an hour left on the flight, and suddenly I realized, oh, I'm supposed to talk to people on planes about Jesus. And so there's a guy next to me. He's probably 40, 45, uh, wearing a football jersey. Looks pretty harmless. And then I realize he's probably going to die and burn in hell if I don't tell him about Jesus immediately, right now. So I just start to sweat. And I think, what if he thinks I'm weird? And I go through probably 30 minutes of worst-case scenarios in my head. And I look at my watch, and I look at the man, and I sweat. What if he's a Muslim? What if he's offended by what I'm saying to him? It's another question I ask. And then I think, OK, I'm, I'm, per, I'm projecting religious characteristics onto someone I don't know, other than the fact that they are a Tampa Bay Bucks fan. So just let's let it go, Kaylee. Look at my watch, look at the man, I sweat. What if he eats Christians? Okay, all right. Now, just, I'm, I'm really freaking out. There's no reason for this. I just need to calm down, just pull it together, just do it. It's going to be fine. So I turn to the man, and just as I turn to him, I feel the, the jolt of the plane landing, and I realize that I have only moments left for this life-saving conversation for this young man, and so I tried to condense all of the stuff that I have to say into the smallest amount of words possible. So I tap him on the shoulder, and he pops out his earbud, and he's like, yeah? And I'm like... Excuse me. Do you have any questions about Jesus? <laughs> and he's like, "Nope." Pops the earbud back in, proceeds to avoid eye contact with me for the rest of the flight. <laughs> do you have any questions about I'm so weird. <laughs> I'm the worst. I'm the reason that people think that Christians are weird. It's it's me. Though I do believe I prompted that man to pray. I think his prayer was, "Thank God that's over." It's the same prayer that Zach prayed when he finished his final James sermon. I'm so sorry. We're not good at this. We're not always good at this. We, we might seem like we just want you to believe what we believe so that you, you know, will follow our rules, and, and maybe that's true sometimes. There are jerk Christians just the same as there are jerk atheists and jerk Buddhists. But here's the thing. If, if you meet a Christian and they seem completely uninterested in telling you about Jesus or what Jesus has done for them, then, then I think you've actually met a, a, like a way worse jerk. Because unless our faith is just a hobby, then it means we actually believe there is a real heaven and we actually believe there is a real hell and that there is a real Savior who is the only way to get us to the right one. And if we really believe that and we don't seem interested in sharing that saving knowledge with you, then then we've just decided that our mutual comfort is more important than your eternity. That's the least loving thing that anyone could possibly do. We don't always do it right. We don't always do it tactfully. The church is full of very flawed people like me. But if someone you love wants you to love Jesus, then I beg you to just just be forgiving of the awkward and ridiculous ways that we sometimes go about it. Most of the time, it is just as painful for us as it is for you. But I assure you, it is a labor of love. Not everybody has someone who's willing to fight for them. You know? If somebody brought you here, if they tell you what Jesus has done for them, even at the risk of your rejection, you have someone who's willing to fight for you. Not everybody has that. And if you already know Jesus, be that person for someone. And get, get people to fight for you too. You need pi- people to fight for you too. We all have doubts and relapses and weak moments when our prayers go unanswered. And, and we begin to wonder if it's worth it to keep trying at all. We need people to fight for us. Again, our faith is personal, but it was never meant to be private. It's meant to be done together. We become stronger together. So so don't make yourself unrescuable. Don't isolate yourself to protect yourself from being found out and make yourself unrescuable by never telling anybody you need help. Be that person. Find that person. Because there really is a final judgment. And there really is a savior. And if Jesus is who he said he was, then he can save us in those final moments. And and he has commissioned us to fight for one another as his image bearers on earth. So let's do it. Verse 20. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So the Greek here actually leaves somewhat ambiguous Uh, who is saved from death and whose multitudinous sins are covered. And I kind of love that. Because to me, that means that perhaps both parties are equally blessed in this transaction. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful. Just for the opportunity to dig into your word and and to allow it to, to dig into us. We confess that, that, that we are not faithful people, that we need you, yet we don't always seek you in our need, that we come to you sometimes only as an absolute last resort when we've finally lost our illusion of control. So, Lord, would you soften the parts of us that have become calloused by unanswered prayers? Would you give us clarity to see rightly the purpose of prayer? Of course for all we hope for, but also also to cultivate intimacy with the Savior we put our hope in. Forgive us, Lord, for, for our fears and frustrations and grant us the grace of your peace and joy in the midst of our present trials. And let your Spirit always bring to mind those who we are fighting for when we choose to be people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, in such a way that makes those you miss most be a little more curious about you And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.